You know what? To hear me tell it, Maynardville Fellowship Baptist Church is the best church in the whole world. You might think that sounds arrogant, but no one thinks it sounds arrogant for somebody to say, I have the best parents in the whole world, do they? Or you're the best son or the best daughter in the whole world. It's not arrogant. It's how thankful people feel about the blessings that God has put in their life. It's the appropriate feeling. When God's blessed you with something, you're overwhelmed, and that's what comes out. It's how you feel when you recognize, when you're grateful for what God has given you. Wednesday evening, Scott Goforth expressed how thankful he was that God put he and Jacqueline here. He said, every day feels like Christmas. <laughs> Bless my heart to hear it. But the best church in the world, where every day feels like Christmas, is still an imperfect church in an imperfect world. Just is. None of the members are fully sanctified, including the elders. So, of course, the church culture as a whole is still stained by remaining sin that we're attempting to root out. It's just the nature of this fallen world prior to glorification. This week has been a difficult week for your elders. Um, and for your elder-to-be, many, many thanks to Josh Woody. Even though he hasn't been ordained yet, he served you all valiantly. In the trenches, thanklessly, without any... You don't even know about it. Sleepless nights, long meetings, and stress so distracting that you can't even eat. The kind of fasting that's born out of anguish. Grief and burden and tears has marked our times. And I don't say any of those things to garner your sympathies. But to confess and remedy some of our failures. This week has been a chastening from the Lord to make us realize. David and I particularly. We're not going to put this evil on Josh. He's not been in leadership long enough. But David and I in particular that our church culture needs some work. We are susceptible to gossip. We are ill-equipped to recognize it when we're doing it. We don't always recognize it when we hear it. And we don't know what to do about it even when we do recognize it. You ever feel trapped in it? Oh, goodness. Know what to do right now. And this church is too precious to us not to address this danger head on. Put you in an awkward situation to where if you don't address it, you're ignoring it, and if you do address it, you're thin skinned. It's where you end up. And for that reason, we're devoting a Sunday morning service to address this need because we think it's better to not avoid it, to hit it head on. As always, we want to address this need scripturally 
and expositorily. And with that in mind, I want you to open your Bibles to Proverbs 20, verse 19. We're going to be looking around a lot in the Scriptures, but the primary exegesis and the definitions of the words we're going to be looking at are are in, in this verse. And our points will come out of this verse, although they're neatly hidden within the meanings of the words. Proverbs 20, 19. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. That's all. From that, I've got four points. You're like, you can get four points out of four words. You leave me alone. (laughs) We're going to look at the risk of gossip. We're going to look at the revelation or the recognition, how to recognize gossip. We're going to look at the response to gossip and then also the root of gossip. We want to begin with the risk of gossip. Well, where do you see the risk of gossip in the text? Well, the word for slanderer and the one who reveals secrets and the gossip, they're all the same person in this text, right? They're all the same guy. But the risk of gossip is hidden in that first word, the slanderer. The meaning of that word is a talebearer or a scandal mongerer. It's somebody who's creating scandal. Such is the person who is saying something negative about a, another person in order to create a scandal in a community. And, and that community can be a family. Y'all, any of you have scandal mongers that have ran around in your family? It doesn't have to be in a church. It can be anywhere. This person that just little stirs stuff up in the family, or in a workplace, or in a local community, or in a church. The slanderer or the scandal monger is part of some larger group where everything is overall doing well. I didn't say perfect. I said overall it's doing well. It's functioning as it should. There's peace. It's growing. But in comes the scandal monger. You've experienced it, haven't you? You've probably got people in mind. It's as if they are they come to you whispering, and it almost always begins with a whisper. Not a shout or a trumpet blast. They suggest, oh, you think everything's fine. You just ain't in a note. Don't be so sure about what you think you see that's peaceful and orderly and growing and healthy. They're not as fine as they look like they are, or at least I suspect they might not be. They're identifying problems which others have failed to see, but they're the insightful ones. They're seeing things you just don't see. They'll be kind, and they'll be warm. They'll come across as genuine and they'll convince you that they actually are the good guy. They're the one you can trust. But they want you to be skeptical of everybody else or at least a few other people. They've been hurt. They've been wronged. Some bad things have gone on and you need to know about it. You need to know about what's gone on. Why? Well, you'll begin to believe that they're trying to protect you from something sinister that might hurt you. 
They'll admit at times that they could be wrong, but then they'll restate their suspicions. It gives you the appearance of, oh, they, they don't, they're not even sure they're right. They're working through this. But then they'll restate them. They'll make sure that you see their, their perspective and their fears. And then they'll add little details as they go that increasingly support their narrative. Have you seen it? You'll think they're good people. They'd never gossip, but you'd be wrong. That's exactly what they're doing with you. That's gossiping. And you are allowing it. You'll think that you're the only one that they've talked to about their concerns, but other people almost always will have heard the exact same stories. Because the scandal monger, it tells this one, and, and it goes and tells this one, I'm, I'm confiding in you. And then it goes over here, hey, did you know this? And it's all covert, and it's all happening, and nobody knows about it. No, they don't know it's a big thing. But over time, it creates a scandal, doesn't it? That's the scandal monger. They tell the same stories, they tell them the same way, and they create the scandal. And what's the outcome? Where there once was a field of unity, there's been planted the seeds of discord. Be mindful of these things, which the Lord says He hates in Proverbs 6, 16. These things the Lord hates. Yes, they are an abomination to Him. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. God hates that. He hates scandal mongering. And He hates... False witness. When you say something and it, when pressed upon it's not true, God hates that. Notice, He hates the false witness. It doesn't even say He hates false witnessing. It says He hates the false witness who speaks lies. And He hates the one who sows discord. Am I reading into the Word or am I reading the Word? That's what it says. We're concentrating this morning on the risks of gossip, how to recognize a gossip, how to respond to gossip, and the root of much of the gossip that we hear. But we must guard our hearts and our lips from this deceitful, destructive sin ourselves because we can fall into it if we're not careful. It's a sin into which it's so easy to fall because there's so many justifications. I'll give you a couple. Oh, I just need to vent. Have you ever just needed to vent? Well, do you? Do, do you need to vent? Where do you find that in Scripture? Show me where the Scripture says, you know what you need sometimes? You need to vent. Well, I do know where the Scriptures say in Proverbs 29 11 that a fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. So it says, if you're wise, you don't need to vent. Once again, am I... Reading into the text or am I reading the text? That's what it says, right? If you have an issue with someone with whom you are in covenant, you have absolutely no right to vent. A.K.A. Here, here's other ways to, to call venting. Slandering their name. That's another word for venting because that's what you're doing. 
Be real. You're venting. You're slandering their name. You're, a.k.a., assassinating their character. You do indeed have the Christian obligation to go tell them and to tell them their fault with, the, with them and them alone, King Jesus says. So you don't need to vent to somebody else. And, or I'm trying to think through these things to make sure I'm correct. That's the other pious thing that we say. I've got to think through it and make sure I'm Am I seeing this right? Well, what better person in the world to think through it with than the person with whom you have an issue? That's what a man does. Betas go talk to everybody else because they're afraid to face things straight on. No, you don't do that. You go to the conflict. You face it. You face the awkward. You love them enough to guard their reputation. And you talk to them and you talk through it and you try to be restorative. You want to think through the issue. They can clarify in ways other people who don't know their, their hearts, they can clarify in ways these other people can't. They, they can give you their perspective better than anyone. And deep, now, deep down we know when we're crossing the line. If you say something about someone and you would be embarrassed if they overheard it or found out, uh-huh. Or if you're listening to someone talk about another person and you'd feel uncomfortable if the person about whom they are talking were there. If you're like, if they were standing here, I would feel so awkward right now. You know. Perhaps you can relate to when you found yourself looking around to see if another person might be close enough to hear what's being said about them. You're kind of looking over your shoulder. Oh, and, and you might actually catch them and you're, oh my goodness. Hand almost in, intuitively, it just goes over your mouth because you know. Or if you see the person who's being talked about and the, the other person that's actually doing the talking, they don't see them and you do the little, the little nod to you know, or the, you know, or you blare your eyes. <coughs> Guys, if you're not the gossiper, but then you still have sense enough to know that they're gossiping and you're blaring your eyes and you're trying to warn them to protect the gossiper, you're guilty. You are guilty. I wasn't gossiping. You were engaged in gossip. Entertaining it. Giving safe harbor to a destructive sin that sows discord amongst the brethren to a scandal monger. It's your conscience, you know, and listen and heed. Would you want to find out that someone else was saying something similar about you without you there? If not, then you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you, shouldn't you? It's just sense. And Bible. And being Bible is more important than it even being sense. But it's just sense too. Not everyone who has violated these principles is a scandal monger. But such are the first steps. And the outcome of such gossip, gossip can be catastrophic. Proverbs 17.9 He who conceals a transgression seeks love. Look at this. There's a transgression that takes place between two, per two people. The one who doesn't tell anybody about it is seeking love. They don't go and... The, the, is the transgression real or imagined? It says, he who conceals an actual transgression is the man who's seeking love. Right? But 
He who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. They're scandal mongers. You remember when Noah got drunk? You remember that one of the brothers came and told the other brothers about it? And were pointing to point out his sin and to show the state he was in. He was naked and drunk. He brought shame to his own father's name. And the other two brothers, they came and they wouldn't even look and they backed up with a sheet to hide his nakedness. Two of those brothers were blessed and one of them was cursed. The one that exposed to try to shine a light on the sin of their drunken father, he was cursed. And his whole line was. He who conceals a transgression seeks love. That's what it says. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. Then, hey, no one need to be talked to when he sobered up a little bit. He did. Need to be restored, didn't he? Not shamed. That's not the heart of a Christian. To just point things out, point out people's flaws. Shame them and beat them down. It's not what we do. The unity of friends can be upset. The unity of whole families can be upset. A whole community or a whole church. Distrust is created. And everyone starts looking at the person whose character has been assassinated with skepticism and distrust. It's toxic. That's the risk of gossip. But how do you recognize it exactly? We've touched on this a little bit. What is the revelation of gossip? Particularly, what's the revelation of the scandal monger? How do you recognize this person didn't just slip up, but he's actually a scandal monger? He's creating this scandal and creating this discord. How do you know when that's happened? Not every item of talking farther than you should is scandal mongering. But there is a way to recognize it. Well, this text tells us, it says, He who goes about as a scandal monger or a slanderer, he reveals secrets. Well, thank, thank you, Captain Obvious, right? He reveals secrets. Well, there's more to it than meets the eyes. Reveals means goes into exile or uncovers, entrusts you with information. And what kind of information does he uncover together and take you into exile with you? He goes into exile with you with what kind of information? With secrets into a state of intimacy and trust with a focus of reliance on secrecy to maintain the discretion. So basically he's saying, hey, I'm going to tell you, I don't want you to tell this person about this, but I need to talk to you about it. I want to talk to you. Just me and you, we don't need to let him know we've talked about this. He's taking you into exile with him to a place of secrecy. He wants to hide with you from the people that can actually expose that he's a false witness so he can sow the discord over here and sow the seeds of distrust with you alone but be very quiet about it. Why would he want you to be very quiet about it instead of getting together with the people that can expose what really happened? Because he's a scandal monger. It's plain as day. There's no question what's happening when, this, when that goes on. They isolate. And they... It's not just saying they told you something that you didn't know. It's not, it's not that they reveal secrets. Or, or that they told you something that, that few knew. It's that they intended it for, for it to be something between just you and them. And either explicitly or implicitly, you'll feel as if they want it to be kept in confidence. 
They want a surety from you that I can trust you with this information. And if, sh- and, and if you shared it with anyone, you would feel like it would be a breach of trust. That's how they'll make you feel. I'm confiding in you and you're doing me wrong if you tell anybody else about this. They'll make you feel that way either explicitly or implicitly. That's what this text means. And that's why Proverbs 26:22 says, The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. Man, why do we enjoy hearing gossip so much? Have you noticed it? it you can enjoy hearing the gossip, can't you? It's like dainty morsels. And they go down into the innermost parts of the body. It's because you think you're being included in something delicious. Oh, that's, well, that's tasty right there. Dainty morsels. That's where that comes from. Oh, that's tasty gossip right there. That's, the, that's good stuff. Not everyone else knows about this. I'm included in something that other people don't know about. And there's a certain delight in it. And you hide it deep in your heart. And you protect their confidence. I'm coming to you, they'll say, because I trust you. I know I'm safe with you. I know that you can help me think through this issue. And I'm not sure anybody else can. But I know I can trust you. They flatter you. So they can tell you and earn, well, they love me. And they want, they, by the flattery, they earn your loyalty so they can trust you with their dainty morsels of gossip that's creating a scandal. Don't flatter yourself. They're not just doing it with you. You ain't as special as they act like you are. People that love attention and want attention and lonely, they're especially susceptible to this. You think, well, this, everybody else doesn't pay attention to me, but this person does. They'll, they prey on that type of person often. They pull you in. They confide in you because they know they can rely on you to maintain their confidence. They tell you or insinuate that you are mature and wise, but by listening, you're actually showing that you're immature and foolish. I'm talking to you because you're mature and wise, but you're so foolish that you fall for it. And you become part of the scandal-mongering. The Proverbs were written to, written to make you wise. Listen, they tell us again in Proverbs eleven thirteen, He who goes about as a talebearer, same word here actually, reveals secrets, same thing. But he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Do you hear that? The scandal monger reveals these secrets. They invite you into exile, into a secret place with the secrets. They invite you there. But he who is trustworthy conceals the matter. They wouldn't invite you into something you don't belong in. Ask yourself the question, what does, what does this have to do with me? It's a simple question. What does this have to do with me? Once someone reveals something to you that has nothing to do with you and they want you to keep it a secret, there's the key. They reveal something to you that has nothing to do with you and they want you to keep it a secret and not involve the parties that are mentioned, they have revealed themselves as untrustworthy. He is trustworthy who is trying to keep this matter concealed between people who are not involved. Why? Because if we get all the people that are actually involved in it involved, it's going to be exposed that I'm wrong. That I'm the false witness. That I'm the scandal monger. Stuff ain't rocket science. Bible's a pretty cool book, isn't it? 
really tells us exactly what's going on when you just look at it. They're the ones with something to hide every time. You can trust the transparent guy. And we know that intuitively. But because the gossip's like dainty morsels, sometimes we can be pulled into it because we lack the attention from the scandal monger and we'll be deceived even though we know intuitively the guy that wants to be transparent, he's the one I can trust. The guy that can, let's talk to everybody in front of everybody in the whole world. I don't care. We know. Of course, that one has nothing to hide. You'd think they would be less successful than they are, but they're pretty successful because we're as sinful as we are. What I have to say now might seem a little bit self-serving, but it's not intended to be. And it's not just at me, it's at any elder or leader. As much as you must refuse to follow the scandal monger into exile with your shared secret, regardless who it is, it's even more important that you be leery of someone who is inviting you with their secrets into exile about an elder. Even more. Anything that diminishes congregational trust and leadership is detrimental to the entire church. And rip a church apart. That's why Satan has painted a huge target on the back of, ter- of church leadership. There's a greater pull to critique and criticize leadership than anybody because that's what Satan wants. He's the accuser of the brethren and he wants to take out the one that has the most influence. Once again, it ain't rocket science. He paints that huge target on the back of church leadership, and unsurprisingly, that's usually who the enemy attacks. Satan is smart enough to know what's ha- what happens. He knows the scriptures better than we do. Zechariah 13:7. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You want to upset the whole flock? We'll get rid of the shepherd. Compromise, trust in the shepherd and the whole flock. Don't follow him anymore. Jesus appropriately applied this truth to himself as the ultimate shepherd, but it's true of anyone in any area of leadership, which is why Paul instructs in 1 Timothy 5, 19-20, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That two or three witnesses saw the elder do something that was clearly sinful, that's when you receive the accusation against an elder. Once that happens, though, though, the elder who continues in sin, you need to rebuke him in the presence of all so that all the rest will be fearful of sinning. We are uh, under the authority of the church as members. And we can be exposed for our sin, too. We're accountable to you. We ain't above, we ain't above the Scriptures because we're elders. We're sheep first and shepherds second. But you have to recognize we are shepherds. Give that Respect and deference. But then when we're in sin, and it's clear and it's been pointed out, we're held to a high standard where we're rebuked in front of everyone if we won't repent. A charge should come when two or three witnesses see something clearly sinful. We're not attempting to escape accountability, but to be unencumbered by endless peccadillo concerns. Do you know how many weeks somebody doesn't like something I said or did? Every week. 
I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. Because we've allowed a culture with too many scandal mongers. How many is too many? Well, one's too many. Exhausted. We should protect the reputations of every man. But what does 1 Timothy 5.17 tell us? The elder who rules well is to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The honor that we would give to every congregant, we should respect all and protect every one of their reputations. We should give double honor to the elder who rules well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. One brother here once said, even triple honor. Amen. So we know that we're not supposed to go into the exile of secrecy with the slanderer. So what is the response? What are, how are we supposed to respond when we encounter the slanderer? Well, it tells us do not associate with a gossip. That's what it says. What does it mean here not to associate with the man? Well, it's not saying that if anyone ever oversteps and tells you something negative about a person, then never talk to them again. That's not what it's saying. Guys, because I think we'd be pretty lonely if that's what it meant. <laughs> we'd be hermits living on an island by ourselves, wouldn't we? Because how many here have been guilty and thought, I went too far in that conversation? Guys, I'd point my fingers at you. I got three pointing back at myself. We've done it. So that's not what it's saying. It's not saying that if anybody ever crosses a line that you never associate with them again. Certainly not. The primary meaning is to not become a surety for. Wasn't that telling? They want your confidence and you refuse to give it to them. You don't mix with them and team up with them and say, yeah, me and you, we're going to have our little exiled huddle of this secret against everybody else. I'm not going to associate with you in this secret thing that we're going to hold together and then have these feelings of bitterness against the rest of the congregation or against somebody else in the congregation. I will not partake of that. No! Because I said it aggressively. Because it's that dangerous. It needs to be addressed that aggressively. Do not associate. Refuse to give them surety. Refuse to keep it in confidence. No! That's the biggest problem. I don't have a lot of gossips. I have a lot of people that entertain gossip and don't realize they're in sin for doing it. And they don't know what they're supposed to do once they've heard it. That's the problem. Refuse to be a confidant. That's one part of not being a surety. I'm not going to allow you to harbor these feelings in your heart. They've came to you with bitter feelings. I'm not going to allow you to harbor these feelings in your heart and not address it. I'm not going to let a root of bitterness spring up in your heart. I love you too much to let that happen to you. You've came to me here with these feelings. We're not going to go into exile and hide from it. We're going to, hate, we're going to face it head on. That's what's best for your soul. It's the loving thing to do for the scandal monger. You're not being mean to the scandal monger. You're loving him well. And I'm not going to let you continue to circulate this kind of poison in my family, in my place of business, in my community, and God forbid in our church. An accusation is a serious thing. 
And a false accusation is even worse. Amen? We have to help identify sin so it can be addressed. If they brought an accusation, we need to find out if it's true so we can deal with the accusation. But if they brought an accusation and it's not true, we need to hold them accountable for being a false witness. Somebody's a sinner here. And they've made it your responsibility to decide who it is. Isn't that nice of them to do to you? That's not what they want you to do. They want you to go into the secret place. They want you to become associate with them as the scandal monger and let them continue to go around sowing it to other people. That's what they want. But God, what, what God's used them for is God has used them to give you the responsibility to be the peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You don't get to be the scandal monger and sow the discord. You've got to be the peacemaker that brings the parties together and then decides what's righteous and has everybody stand in it. They put that on you. That's your duty and that's your responsibility. And if you're shirking, you're in just as big a sin as they are. You understand? When you hear an accusation, there's two possibilities. It's true or it's false. Can you all think of another one? See it, right? But how do we know? By not becoming an assurity, by refusing to be a confidant, and turn to Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 20. Is everyone there? Anybody need a minute? All right. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 20. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. You've got one witness, you ain't got nothing. Right? On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. We need to enlarge the circle and get people involved. Not enter into an island of secrecy. Not invited into exile to hold it together and us will just know about it and not involve the other parties. No, let's get everybody together and let's talk this out. The truth will come out. It'll be obvious. We've got to get people involved. And then what, what, what does it say you do then? If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord. Does anybody get to run away? Nobody gets to run away. Both men involved in the dispute. There's a disagreement of, I think you did wrong. Well, I think you did wrong. I know you are, but what am I? We don't get to do that endlessly. Nobody gets to run away. You come together. That's the biblical way. Both men have the dispute and they stand before the Lord, before the priests, and before the judges who will be in office in those days. Of course, the parallel for that for us is we are a kingdom of priests as a church and a holy nation. And it says that the church is supposed to judge between those within the church in 1 Corinthians 5 5 and 6. Clear parallel right there. It was the Old Testament uh, uh, temple system and judge system. And now it's the church, the ecclesia, the gathered people of God. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. We just don't let things go. You say, man, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, guys, we ain't a social club. We're a real church. We're going to do what God's Word says, whether it's easy or whether it's hard. When it's hard, I just don't get to sleep as much. And I have, I'm in the bathroom more. And I get really hungry because I can't eat. But we do it anyway. Why? Because Jesus, King Jesus says so. And He's Lord. 
And we're His prisoners. We're His slaves. And because you people are too precious, and if something's going to tear at the unity of this church and keep us from being effective of fighting out there because we're too busy fighting in here, I hate it, and we've got to get rid of it. Or we'll just sit here and be a little social club church. Never accomplishes anything for the kingdom. Church split, church split, church split, church split, church split, because it's never dealt with. That don't fly here. We won't do it. Absolutely not. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. You won't rid of this toxic kind of stuff. Deal with it in a public way and it'll stop happening. Why? Because the rest will hear and they'll be afraid and they'll never again do such evil among you. Why am I heading this head on this week on a Sunday morning with visitors here? Because I think the rest of you are like, I don't want to be part of this because Matt will deal with it directly. David will deal with it directly. Josh will deal with it directly. Maynardville Fellowship Baptist Church will deal with it directly and I can't hide from it. I have to take responsibility for what I've done. It'll stop it because people know that'll be a shame to me. I don't get to hide like a cockroach in the darkness from my sin. I will be exposed. It gets rid of it. Say, I don't like gossip. I don't like scandal mongers. I don't like slanderers. Then do this, and it won't be part of your church culture. You forfeit the luxury of confidence once you invoke the name of the person who's not with you. Hear that. You forfeit the luxury of confidence. Once you invoke the name of a person who's not with you, you no longer have confidence. People want to protect the confidence of the gossip more than they care about protecting the reputation of the person that they're gossiping about. It's wild. I see it a thousand times. A third party tells me something. Somebody said this or this about me or about the church. And I say, who told you that? I'd love to meet together with that person to flesh this out. And then they get uncomfortable. I can see them squirming. Not the scandal monger, but the, the person that was invited into the secret place with their little secret because they've associated with them and they've got their little holy huddle against everybody else because they've got their secret knowledge that this is really a bad place, but they don't want it exposed. That person that's entered into that, whether they know it or not, they're like very uncomfortable. Now, who told you that? Can't tell you that. They might even lie about it. Right? They don't want to break confidence or violate their trust or the surety that they made that they never should have given to begin with. They've said, well, I'll talk to, I'll talk to them and see if they care if I share it with you and I'll get back to you. Brothers, you don't have to get the scandal monger's permission to do what Scripture requires you to do. You don't have to have the permission of the slanderer to expose his slander to call him to the carpet and see whether he's telling the truth or not. God tells you to do it. You have to. You've got God's command. It trumps their permission. Every time. Bring the parties involved together. 
It was the law of Israel, and it's the law that Jesus reiterated for the Israel of God, the church. Turn now to Matthew 18, 15-20. You say, well, Matt, you quoted the Old Testament. Yeah, the whole Bible's inspired, so I don't think that matters. But if we need to reiterate it, what it says in Deuteronomy 19, listen what Jesus says in Matthew 18. It's almost like he thought the whole Bible mattered and that Deuteronomy 19 was still inspired and still mattered. Here's the instructions, because Jesus knew this stuff was going to happen. It's always happened, and it always will happen. It will be less prominent in some churches where you address it like you should. Listen to this, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. That should be your goal anyway. Your goal should be to win your brother every time. If you're concerned about his sin, it shouldn't be so you can out him or shame him. It should be so you can help him and win your brother. I won't tell other people about it. I want to go to him and tell him about it. But if he does not listen to you, then you actually get to involve or have to involve other people. It's then and only then. Then take one or two more with you so that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact might be confirmed. What's he quoting from, guys? Deuteronomy 19. At that point, there's a dispute, and it makes the most sense for the two or three you go to to be people who are involved and know something about the situation so they can bring clarity because we all have fallen perspectives and we view things with ourselves as being more righteous than the other person automatically. That's, we're, that's the part of the nature of the fall. You have an argument, and then you tell somebody else about the argument, and you spoke in soft tones, and they screamed at you. But that ain't really what happened, but that's how you tell it, and that's how you remember it. So that's why you try to get the two or three witnesses to be people who were around, who saw what actually went down in an event. Because you want the truth. And the way to get to the truth is get people who are involved. But if he refuses to listen even to them, then you tell it to the whole church. Where do you see hiding? You don't see hiding, right? Hiding never happens. You tell it to the church, which corresponds, like I said, to in front in the presence of the Lord, both, both people in the dispute, in the presence of the Lord, and all the priests, and the judges, and that they investigate it thoroughly. Then you tell it to the entire church. And if he won't even listen to the whole church, then you let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, an unbeliever. You do unto him as he was trying to do unto you. What he wanted done to you, you do it to him because he's ended up being somebody that wouldn't listen to what the church said when it ruled on something. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind, the church binds on earth, will be what was bound in heaven. That the church will speak with the authority of God when they hear a matter and God will give help through His Spirit to help them discern rightly and you can trust what the church says if it's a true church. Guys, you can pretty much say if there's a hundred people and they all say I'm wrong but I'm, I know I'm right, most of the time you're wrong. Right? And if you are 100% convinced, convictionally, that I'm right, I think at that point you need to leave. That place is not a church. You're basically, when you leave, you're saying you're not a church. There can't be a place for that. You're so wrong, the Spirit's not at work in you. You can't see this clearly. You've got this doctrine wrong or this practice so wrong. Like if I was in a church and 99 out of 100 said homosexuality, gay marriage was fine, I'd say, no, you're wrong and I'm leaving. I think I would be right to do so. But when you do it, you better be right because God's going to judge you. You better be right when you make that decision to go against every other person 
you're going to resist counsel, you better be smart. I got too much humility to do that most of the time, don't y'all? I know I don't see things perfectly and that I need other eyes on things. That's why I don't want to go to a secret place. I want all the eyes on things. I want to be transparent. I want everybody to know what's going on. I want to be rebuked if I need to be rebuked. I want to be corrected if I need to be corrected. I want to be removed from being your pastor if I need to be removed from being your pastor. That's what I want. Shouldn't that be the heart of every one of us? It's called integrity. And every Christian should have it. Every single one. Whatever has been... You bind on earth as a church will be what was bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be, shall be what was loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or of you agree on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Guys, that ain't talking about the warm fuzzies when you all are worshiping together and you're having your guitar by the fire and you're gathering in Jesus' name. That's when you're in the middle of church discipline and you're gathering in the name of the Lord under His presence and there's a dispute and the church agrees together against someone else that God's on the side of the majority when it's a true church and that you should heed it. That you're resisting Jesus Himself. He's in the midst of the church ruling against the scandal monger, or the person who was rightly accused. But the investigation fleshes that out. God forbid that the deceitfulness of sin turn you into a scandal monger, protecting the identity of your personal informant. Another way to not provide surety for the slanderer is defend the character of the person that they're attacking. Scandal mongers hate that. They come to you putting somebody down, you need to defend the person that they're speaking against that's not there. Why? Because that's the loving thing to do. In Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, it says, Speak up for those who have no voice. And for the, for the justice of all those who are defenseless. The person who's not there, he has no voice. You know why? He ain't there. He can't talk to you. He can't defend himself. He can't give, no, 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 that's not how I see it or that's not actually how I feel or that's not actually what happened. He has no voice. So you get the talebearer bringing you their uh, account of what happened and then you say, oh, wow, that's terrible. No, no, no. You say, I don't believe that. I, I would have to, we have to get this together and flesh this out. That just doesn't sound like the character of this brother that I love so much. You defend the character that's being slandered. No one is more voiceless or defenseless than a man whose character is being assassinated when they're not there. It's the reason you'd hate it if somebody was talking bad about you when you weren't there. Would you want someone to do it to you if you were the one being defamed? Then do the same for them. Stop with the, I see where you're coming from. Or with the, I thought the same thing. Or with sharing a story. Oh, oh, you, that happened to you? Well, one time I was with so-and-so and they did this. Man, that fits the pattern. If you've not went to them, you then, they didn't drug you into your scandal, their scandal mongering. They made you just like them. You share a story that more deeply entrenches their already held opinion. And you talk about all... Instead of that, you should be talking about all the good things that you know about the other party that's not there. Proverbs, I mean, Philippians 4, 8. 
Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, we should dwell on those things and refuse to talk about things that we don't even know are true that are being brought to us when that party's not around. And lastly, you refuse to provide surety. Or calm, or you refuse that. You defend the character of the person they're attacking, and you call the gossip to repentance. Oh, that's confrontational. Yeah, it is. What they're doing is pretty confrontational too, coming to you and dragging you in the middle of something you have no business being in. The last aspect of this is the ultimate act of refusing to be a surety for the scandalmonger. The person about whom they are talking might be in sin. That's possible, isn't it? It's possible they're telling you something and they're right. The person that they're talking about is in sin. That's possible. There might be a misunderstanding though and the slanderer might be intentionally bearing witness. Isn't that possible as well? All three of those things are possible. You don't know for sure if the person they're talking to you about is in sin or not. But The slanderer is in sin because Jesus told that person to go to the one who sinned against him and to go to him alone. So the person they're talking to you about might be in sin, but they definitely are in sin. But you're more more concerned about the might be than the definitely is. Oh man, they might be wrong. Hey guys, there's a big big flashing light in front of you that they're wrong. This person's wrong. Oh, they might be wrong. You look right past the flashing light. This person's wrong. Oh, they might be wrong. Why? Because the dainty morsels go down to the inner part of your being. You enjoy being invited into the secret place. They flattered you. You're being a fool. Absolute fool. You think you're wise. You're a fool. The man bringing you into the situation is in clear sin. So what do you do? Here's what you do. You set up a meeting between you and the two parties. Talking to them for 30 minutes as they tell you every negative opinion that they have about someone. And you sit and you listen to it and you listen to it and you listen to it. And then you say, well, you need to go talk to them. And you think you did something so holy. Well, you need to go talk to them. I'm out of it now, but you need to go talk to them. I've listened to you go on and on and on for 30 minutes. I'm not even going to find out if it's true or not. I'm just going to sit over here and wonder, have my negative, those negative seeds against this other person. I'm never going to fish it out and actually find out if it's true or not true. I'm just going to wonder, and I'm going to tell you and put the responsibility back on the scandal marker, thinking they'll have enough integrity to actually go and talk about it in a way that's actually profitable. How foolish is that? They're not going to do it. You need to go talk to them. It's nowhere near enough. Why? Because they have turned a private matter into a public accusation when they tell you about it. That's why it's no longer between them and them alone. They brought you into it. They've made it now a public accusation. It's not the same. They've not, it's not he sinned against me and I need to go to him alone. It's now they've made it a public accusation that needs to be investigated. You see the difference? That's why you no longer have the confidence anymore. They turned a private disagreement into a public accusation. And now it's got to be investigated with everybody present so that I can find out what really happened and they can come to agreement. And if we can't do that together with the three of us, then we've got to broaden the circle. Maybe with two or three more witnesses and maybe before the whole church. Because that's what the Bible says to do. 
If the person that's being accused is wrong, they need to be rebuked. And if the slanderer is a false witness, then he needs to be exposed as such because he's a dangerous cancer to the church. Number two reason why you've got to set up a meeting between you and the two parties is they often don't go to the person like you instructed, but rather they run around spreading the same accusations to more uninvolved people. The longer you wait, the more people they can get to to, to try to drag into it as well. And that's what they're doing. You think, oh, no, they're not. Guys, in the situation we're dealing with right now, I've talked to about 10 or 12 people already that know the exact same narrative of all the exact same events. Because you didn't do your job. And lastly, if they do go talk with a person, they often present the concern far differently in person than they did to you. And the issues remain uninvolved. Even if they go, you say, you need to go talk to them. And then they do. They were harsh and critical and called everything out in front of you. And when they go, they have a whole different tone. And then they come back and say, I talked to them. And they just wouldn't listen. And you don't even know what was actually said. Because you weren't there. Then you believe their lie. Oh, he talked to them and they still didn't listen. Oh, wow, they really must be awful. But you weren't there to verify. And conveniently, no one was. Right? So obvious when you think about it. And you've got to make sure it happens quickly. I've already mentioned that. But Matthew 5, 22 through 25, the stakes are really high, guys. Turn to Matthew 5, 22 through 25. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your, uh, presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, here's how important it is. Leave your offering before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother. The most important thing is not let it hang out. I'll go next week or I'll let this wait a few days. You cannot even worship God until you have valued the relationship with your brother. That's what he's saying. And if they're unwilling to do it by themselves, you be the help to make sure they do it. And that they do it quick. And you call them, you can't wait on this. And they say, oh, I'm going to. No, no, we're going to, not you're going to. We've got to do this because it matters. Because the anger that's in your heart is enough to send you to fiery hell. You're helping them. That's what you're not realizing. You're, you're not just helping the person being slandered. You're saving the slanderer who is filled with anger, which makes him guilty before the court. The guy that's saying bad things, calling somebody a good-for-nothing, who is to be guilty before the Supreme Court, who is saying, well, this guy's wicked or fool or whatever insult, that he's guilty enough to go into fiery hell. You're saying, we have to deal with this because this will drag your soul to hell. This is urgent. Why are we acting like we're playing a game? Sometimes I wonder if we believe this book or not. Make friends quickly with your opponent. Fix the severed relationship. Let it be exposed what the truth is. Everybody submit to the facts and then go on and love each other. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him in the way. 
When someone gossips, they're sinning against the person about whom they're gossiping. They're sinning against the entire church. They're sinning against themselves. And they're even sinning against you. They might flatter you and tell you how helpful you are, how wise, how compassionate, how understanding, and how empathetic. But deep down, you know that something's wrong. They've sinned against you by tempting you into sin, and it upsets your entire spirit. You don't feel right no more. Have you been there? Like, I don't feel right. I can't put my finger on I just feel dirty. I feel wrong. You thought, I don't want to be in the middle of this. You thought, I feel trapped. You thought, I feel confused and conflicted. You thought, I don't know what to do. Well, all of those things might have been true before this morning due to the failure of shepherding from me and David. That's on us. We failed you because y'all didn't know how to handle this. And we have been disciplined for that this week. We don't feel sorry for ourselves. We do feel repentant. Not for what I've been accused of. Not that. But for the failure of shepherding to make sure this stuff was handled the right way. For that. For that. You can never again say you don't know what to do. And doing what you're supposed to do will eliminate all this cancer from our culture. Remember what it said in Deuteronomy 19? The judges shall investigate thoroughly... And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge this evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid, and they will never again do an evil thing like that among you. You want rid of it? Here's how. We have the clear course to a healthier church culture by doing what this says. We've uprooted the scandal bearers, the scandal mongers. And everybody else is afraid to do it. Makes them more aware of what's going on, doesn't it? Before we close, let's consider one last point. And that's the root of gossip. Where do we find the root of the problem here? Where do we see that in the text? Well, I was shocked by one of the aspects by the Hebrew word translated as gossip here. It indicates that the person is one who is easily deceived or one who fools himself. He's fooled himself. The gossip has fooled himself. They don't even know their narrative is wrong. They actually believe the lies they're telling. They've gotten themselves to the point to where they believe all the things that they're spewing. It's not that they're telling lies on purpose. It's that they're telling lies because they've fooled themselves into believing a false narrative that can be corrected, but they refuse to have it corrected. They fooled themselves, and in their self-deception, that's what they've done. And guys, should that not drive us to mercy and pity? They're they're not just trying to do something wicked. They're self-deceived. God, if you, if you miss, this is love. Yeah, we're angry at the sin, but we've got to love the person. We've got to try to be a remedy. Because I don't think it's just malicious. I don't think it's just that. It might be in there. We're a tangled mess, aren't we? But they're self-deceived. They fooled themselves. They've lied to themselves and found some sort of comfort in their lie. Often their lie is giving them an excuse to run away 
so that they have to entrench themselves in the lie. They want to believe it really deeply so they can be freed to run away. Probably because they don't want to deal with things they're being called to, with sins that they're seeing, where they're scared of the covenant community. They want out. So Satan lies to them, and they start believing the lie, and they become self-deceived. They tell other non-involved people to get them to agree. They'll go to old pastors. They'll go to church friends in different church bodies. They'll go to people in the church who they don't think will expose their gossip and people who they think might agree. And then what they already think, they'll say it. And then the other people will contribute a few other things that contribute to this narrative that they want to believe. And they'll be more and more entrenched so that they can separate themselves. They can run away. The motives are muddy, a muddy mess. But they don't want the light of actual witness of the events to come to bear because that would expose them. Proverbs 18.1, how many of you know it? He who separates himself seeks his own will, his own desires. He who separates himself seeks his own desires. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. He won't listen to reason. Even when you do get in front of him with people that actually, no, no, you're seeing this wrongly, he will quarrel against the sound wisdom. He's trying to separate himself, and then if he even allows a meeting, he will quarrel against the sound reason that you give him. Why? Because a fool does not delight in understanding. Remember, it's someone who fools themselves. They're easily deceived. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. He don't want to hear what you're saying. He don't even want to hear how you prove it with the facts. He only wants to reveal his own mind of how he sees it. Because that's the deception he's comfortable with. He'll dig his heels in deep to hold on to it. Such a man doesn't want his false narrative to be exposed by witnesses who can verify the truth. Don't let them deceive themselves. We are not doing such things to persecute the gossip. But we might have to prosecute the gossip. That's what church discipline is. It's the church getting together, searching the Scriptures, landing on what's right, and if someone won't hear it, exposing them. And maybe having to put them out as a Gentile and tax collector. As someone who's not part of the covenant, who are praying for their salvation. They cannot repent when they are entrenched in their fantasy And we want these things exposed for the health of the church and so that the erring one can be restored. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. We want to bring them back. That's the goal. Guys, if you're like, man, I'm so mad, I just want so-and-so gone. Guys, I get you. But we're just not allowed to do that. We're just not allowed. We have to love them through their sin. Because I can think of somebody that loved you through yours and me through mine. I can think of when I was the lost lamb strayed from the fold and he came and got me. So we go get them. Not to tell them how bad they are and not just to vindicate ourselves, but we go get them to bring them back to the fold. Because that's what love does. Well, that's going to take a miracle. Good thing we've got a real God that can do miracles in our hearts. We restore them in a spirit of gentleness, and we need a little humility, each of us looking to ourselves, so that we too won't be tempted. You are above 
falling into this sort of sin if God doesn't keep you from it. And neither am I. And neither is the holiest man on this planet. It's God that makes anybody holy. And He removes His hand and we fall. Despite the fact that we put so much time into the Discovering Maynardville Fellowship class and in explaining the church covenant, we still have people who want to break covenant when there's a perceived sin or relational tensions. It seems that people do not understand their duties as covenant members. Sin is serious, and to leave a church in the midst of unaddressed sin, especially when a person believes that sin to be in the leadership, is a loveless violation of the church covenant they entered into when they joined Maynardville Fellowship. When you joined, you agreed. Here's our covenant promises to one another when we join Maynardville Fellowship. To daily seek to encourage and disciple other believers in obedience to the commands of Christ, speaking truth in love while being likewise disciplined in the church. It's not an option. You promise to do this when you join. When there are disagreements concerning areas of faith or practice, that you will work through these disagreements with patience in the church. Not you run away and leave because I don't agree with you, but I work through them with patience in the church, like it says in Deuteronomy 19 and in Matthew 18. That I recognize and accept those whose consciences differ from mine when the church has deemed a belief or practice acceptable. If their church says, hey, I'm not sure who's right in this, but we're just going to liberate people's conscience. Scripture's not clear enough. Just walk according to how you see things. Godspeed. You can't lord your interpretation over somebody else and despise them because they don't see things the same way you do in, in, in how you live your life out, your faith out. Guys, we're not justified by our works or seeing all practice rightly. We're justified by the completed work of Christ and our faith in Him. Do we believe that or not? Or do we think everybody has to be cookie cutters of us? He redeems every one of us sinners and then conforms us to His image, and we're all on different steps in that path, and we're all on varying degrees of what's right and wrong. We've got to have a lot of patience and tolerance toward one another in the middle of that, don't we? And that we promise to walk in humility toward believers with whom we differ, diligently pursuing unity and love as we stand together in the commands of Christ. The good news is that we all likewise are in covenant to hear you when you do that. That we will acknowledge Jesus as the final prophet, interpreter, and fulfiller of the law, the complete and perfect revelation of the Father. That we'll endeavor to grow in knowledge of Christ. That we don't think we've got it all figured out. That we'll bear down on the Scriptures and say, what does God's Word say? Think through it together and stand in whatever it says. That we'll listen to regularly attend. That we will, I mean, we'll regularly attend the corporate gathering. We're actually going to show up to to be sharpened by each other. You promised that when you joined. That through prioritizing relationships with other spirit-filled believers and avoiding relate, intimate relationships with people who hate God, not relationships at all. We want to evangelize them, but intimate relationships. And to commit to be quick to repent when confronted with sin as the admonition of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are a primary means of personal and corporate sanctification. And to seek to grow in holiness and obedience to Christ's commands, conforming our lives to His revelation, submitting to Scripture, submitting to one another, submitting to our elders, and dealing radically with our sin. At Maynardville Fellowship, we have deeply held theological commitment that fosters a humility that recognizes we're not always right. We just aren't. We want to be, but we're not. We're willing to think through things. We submit to Scripture when we're shown we're wrong. As a matter of fact, we're eager to do so, but we must be shown, and you must be willing to hear us out if you think we're wrong. You don't just to just cut bait and leave. You have to help us, because you said you would. And you have to receive our help, because you said you would. It's a mutual relationship. 
It's not marriage, but it's a covenant. Like marriage is a covenant. That's how we all grow. And I ask you this, why would anyone ever leave a church that's willing to conform to whatever the Bible teaches? No church has every doctrine and ethical issue rightly understood and perfectly lived out. The best you could hope for when you leave us because of some disagreement is that you leave us in one, because of one area where you think we're wrong on an issue and then you join another church that agrees with you on that issue only to discover that you think they're wrong on something else. And then what? Well, then you're going to leave there too without working on the issue. Why? Because you're not, you don't really love any of the people. Guys, the church is the people. If you love these people, how can you leave them and not grow together with them and fulfill your covenant responsibilities? Unless God's calling you, truly calling you, not because of relational tension or disagreement, but truly calling you to serve somewhere else or you have to move away or you have deeper relationships in another church body where you're being discipled. There can be legitimate times to leave, but never because of a fractured, fractured relationship. Ever. That can't happen. We've got to seek restoration. Where's the gospel in all of this? What's the most heinous example that you can think of of a man who was falsely accused? Can you think of somebody that was falsely accused? Jesus. We call him Lord, don't we? Mark 14, 55-56. The chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. And they were not finding any. For they were all giving false testimony against Him. But their testimony was not consistent. Well, of course it wasn't. Everybody just lying on Him. And what did Jesus do? 1 Peter 2, 21-25. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow Him in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. He was completely innocent. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. Why didn't He defend Himself? Because He came to die for you. Because you are a sinner. And I am a sinner. I'm guilty of all these things. I'm not the Jesus in this equation, and you're not either. We're the gossips. We're the entertainers of gossips. We're the scandal creators, the scandal mongers. We're guilty of all manner of sin. He never sinned, but he got falsely accused. Even though he could have burned everybody up and destroyed them all, he said, no, no, I'm going to choose to suffer and die for that people. Guys, we've been wronged this week. And we swallow hard and we say, I've suffered, but I'm still going to love that person. I'm willing to suffer more. That's what we have to do. The gospel demands it. We don't get to cut bait. Because these are the eternal souls of people who we're required to love. He uttered no threats. He bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because of what He did, we can be different. We can live this out. And by His wounds we are healed. We were continually straying like sheep, but we've returned to the shepherd, the guardian of our souls. 
so I can continue to strive to be like Christ, knowing that I'm not what I should be. I can help others, even continuing to pursue and love those who slander us and put us down because their souls are worth it. We can walk in humility when accused, being open to the accusation, because if I'm not justified because of my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, then I don't have to justify myself. I can take the accusation and say, hey, you might be right, let's investigate it. If I am, I need to repent. I don't have to defend myself. I can leave it open to God to vindicate me in His way and in His time if I'm innocent and expose me for my own good if I'm guilty. How many here know who Charles Spurgeon was? Prince Prince Preachers. What he was called. He got a lot of abuse in his day. People from outside the church attacked him. People from inside his church grew. It was huge. Had a hard time. His name was in the paper all the time and never for good stuff. And somebody asked him once, how do you take all that abuse and all that slander and all those false accusations against you and never return and get angry and yell and scream or write something back? He said, I keep reminding myself that although the things they say about me might not be true, there's things that are true about me that are far worse. We remember that. And when we remember that, we're like, hey, so what? They're falsely accusing me in this area. I'm still a guilty sinner. And still all I have is Christ. I still just have to do whatever my duty is and look to Jesus the whole time as an imperfect fallen sinner who's redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus. I can forgive those who stir discord in the church and defame my name because I am one who is a recipient of great mercy. And if you don't forgive those who trespass against you, your Heavenly Father won't forgive you of your trespasses. I can continue striving together in cooperation with my imperfect covenant community, using my gifts in concert with other spirit-filled believers who are not finished products any more than I am. And I can keep using my gifts as pastor, even when the target is on my back, even when it gets so burdensome, I don't want to bear it, because I trust that God will use whatever I suffer for my good and for His glory and to chasten me into a better, more gracious shepherd. You think the enemy doesn't sometimes tell me and David, why don't you just back out? Why don't you just quit? It'd be better to just be a member. You don't have to desert the people. You can just be a member like all the other members. And they say, God, is that what serves the church? If it is, I'll do it. And if it is, I'll do it. But I'm not convinced it is. I'm not convinced of that. But I'm open to it. But love compels me to where if it serves the church the best, I'll keep the target on my back. I'll keep being the person that speaks publicly. I'll keep the, the being the one that the enemy wants to come at. Why? To shield you. Because you all matter. And because I think it's what's best for the kingdom of God. I will. And we all should have the hearts of prisoners and servants who will do the same thing. Not only should we have those hearts, that's what we've covenanted together to do as members of Vanderbilt Fellowship, Baptist Church.